0: Welcome back to The Jill Bennett Show. I'm Scott Schantz, filling in all this week. It's a big day south of the border. Donald Trump is set to surrender at a jail in Georgia over 2020 election charges. Back in 2020, when he tried to have the election overturned in the state of Georgia, this has been a long time coming. A whole bunch of other people have been indicted in this case, and uh, uh, you're forgiven if you're a little bit confused by this and all of the other Donald Trump stuff. Happening, Uh, the Republican debate for Republican nominee for the next election was last night. Donald Trump wasn't there, but like there were so many questions about him and drama about him and stuff. It's just such a such a time south of the border, and I know that uh, our politics are different. We are a different country, but. This story seems to be big, and there kind of is this attitude that this indictment is different than the other ones. So here to help us understand more is my guest, uh, Alan Sanders. Uh, he's an attorney and former Time Magazine senior reporter and professor of political science at St. Peter's University in New Jersey. Thanks for being here, Professor Sanders. I appreciate it. Pleasure, Scott. So is, how is this indictment different from the other ones that we've already seen for Donald Trump?
1: Well, uh, it's different because it's being brought by a state prosecutor. Uh, Now, the uh, allegations are pretty much the same as the federal allegations pertaining to the January 6th events, Uh, but uh, this indictment now, it comes from the state of Georgia and alleges violations of state laws. So it's a state prosecution, and what makes it different is that the prosecutor has decided to bring it in as a racketeering case as a racketeering case, uh... bringing in all the co defendants that she believes were involved in this uh... illegal enterprise to uh... basically annul of the election results of Georgia and unlawfully declare uh... Donald Trump uh... the new president in uh... re based on the results in Georgia. Um... So it's different uh... because it's a larger case, it's a more unwieldy case, and what makes it also different is that because it is a state case, um, it is not subject to a federal pardon. So there have been many uh, instances in which Trump and some of his uh, uh, other uh, Republican candidates have said that, uh, you know, if they were elected president, uh, they would pardon Donald Trump or they would do something uh, to stop the investigation or the proceedings. Cannot do that because we're in a federal system. Uh, and as you understand in Canada, federal system yeah, is one in which uh, the local jurisdictions, in our case the states, are independent, and the federal government cannot control those prosecutions.
0: Okay. Now you mentioned the word racketeering, which for a layperson like myself, you know, we hear that and we hear this like Rico act thing in movies and stuff. And it's always associated with like organized crime and, and like mob stuff. That's another word we've sort of heard thrown around here. Can you explain that a bit more? Sure. Well,
1: sure. It was originally conceived of as a statute or criminal statute to go after mobsters, uh, organized crime, absolutely. But the language is broad enough that if you can show that there has been a criminal enterprise by any group, uh, whether it's a formal or informal group, and you can show that, and then you can show that the members uh, that were involved in this enterprise basically collaborated, conspired, agreed uh, to join in the goals of the... uh, criminal enterprise, a legal enterprise, then these people can be charged as part of that criminal enterprise. So it's a way to group defendants instead of um, charging them individually and having to prove the case in a series of trials for each of the individual defendants. It's a way to group together uh, a group of people who uh, have, uh, according to the prosecutors, engaged in a group criminal activity. So it's a a kind of a conspiracy statute, um, and it's been used uh, not just against mobsters here in the United States, but again, uh, uh, against other criminal enterprises, against businesses, uh, and also informal groups, uh, gang members. uh, And now, uh, for the first time, it's being used uh, to charge uh, people who were involved in the presidency, the president himself, and those around him, as being part of a criminal enterprise. So it's rather unprecedented on many levels, and this is yet another level of unprecedented, unprecedented uh, thing about this this whole case.
0: Yeah, it feels uh, significant. Um, what would you say to people who, you know, there's so much... Um, Tr- Donald Trump, U.S. election type stuff happening, that it can be easy. And I, I know even I fall prey to this and I'm extremely interested in it, that it's, you know, he's been indicted once, he's been indicted twice. And in both cases, you know, he's, there's no, um, it, at least in the present term, it doesn't feel like any sort of significant outcome from it. Um and we could be forgiven for sort of feeling that is this is this going to be the same like he's going to go in, he's going to say I'm not guilty, get about a picture taken and then back back on to, you know, sort of poking at the at the bear and tweeting and talking about running for president again. Is this, like it, basically I'm asking, is this just more of the same or could this actually see some consequences and, and what's the likelihood of that?
1: Well, uh, it's certainly going to move faster than people anticipated. Uh, the federal prosecutor, uh, prosecution in Washington, the special counsel, Jack Smith, has asked for a January 2 uh, commencement of trial. Now, probably it'll be pushed back a little bit, but uh, he's asking for an early trial next year uh so that's uh, significant then we just had a, develop a development today in Georgia in which um, the uh Georgia prosecutor asked that uh, the trial start in October of this year after one of the defendants used his right for a speedy trial filed a motion saying i, I want a speedy trial and under the Georgia statutes um, he is entitled to that and uh, he uh, suggested uh, uh uh you know an early trial So the uh, prosecutor fanny willis in Georgia came back and said okay you want a speedy trial well let's do it in october now that's going to set off set off a flurry of motions uh from the other defendants who I think uh, don't want such an early trial, and Donald Trump has already indicated through his attorney uh, that he doesn't want a a trial so early, and that he might seek to sever or ask the court uh, to sever his case from that of Mr. Cheeseborough. Now, these are a whole complicated set of motions, legal motions. It's very hard at this point to see how it will all come down from uh, the judges, Uh, but uh, certainly there's going to be a lot of activity, and we've already seen it, uh, as to when the trials, uh, any of these trials, might begin. Uh, and it's much too early to tell how everything will come out. The only thing I think that can be sure is that the legal b- bills, the le- legal bills for all of these defendants are starting to pile up very quickly.
0: Yeah, it certainly feels like that. And like you say, there's a, there's a lot um, to sort of monitor, and it's easy to get sort of bogged down in it. But like we say, today, there has been a lot of um, sort of a talk about what's going to happen at at the courthouse today Uh, do we expect that he's going to have like a mugshot taken and be fingerprinted like we saw happen with Rudy Giuliani
1: yes I would think so Uh, the uh, local authorities in Georgia have made clear that they intend to process everyone as they have processed any other defendant and so we've seen that all the other defendants have been fingerprinted and have had a mugshot uh, taken and so there's no reason to anticipate that it will be different for Donald Trump So expect a mugshot uh, probably later today. Uh, Trump has planned to surrender himself today, probably this evening. So uh, perhaps later this evening or early tomorrow, we should have a mugshot of Donald Trump if uh, the local authorities live up to their word.
0: Wow. And one of the things that I've heard, and I'd I'd love to know your take on this, is perhaps the reason that this is such such a big deal sort of surrounding Donald Trump is, uh, basically that the the whole system is kind of on trial here uh, just in the, the sense that is no one truly above the law that you know we have evidence that Donald Trump committed crimes and that you know uh, to this point of hey they're going to follow the the standard procedure uh, everybody gets mugshots so he's going to get a mugshot and the standard procedure is we treat kind of everyone the same and if that's the case does you know a person who was president and could be president again is that person above the law? Uh, do you feel that that there is that significance here? That um, there's much more at stake than just one man's consequences for his actions.
1: Oh, absolutely. The prosecutors have said very clearly in their legal motions and uh, in various statements that they've made to the press that they believe uh, that Donald Trump should be prosecuted like anyone else. No one is above the law. I should also point out that although this is all unprecedented here in the United States, we've never had anything like this in American history, it's not unprecedented in other democracies. Other democracies have prosecuted their former leaders, whether it was a president or a prime minister. That has happened in France, it has happened in Italy, it has happened in Israel, and it has happened in, in a few other democracies. If the leader of a country has committed crimes and it can be proven in a court of law, other democracies have said, "Well, we should do it, and they have done it. And I think here in the United States, uh, you can see that there 's just the same force at work here. Certainly the prosecutors are saying, "Look." Uh, It doesn't matter whether you're you're high or low in the uh, culture or in the system or in the politics of the country. If you've committed a crime, you need to be prosecuted, and of course, it it will be a judge of ordinary, uh, say, a jury of ordinary citizens that will determine your guilt or innocence.
0: It's certainly an interesting time, and uh, you know we're definitely going to watch it closely. Alan Sanders, thanks so much for the insight and helping us kind of understand what's going on. He, Alan is a former Time magazine senior reporter and professor of political science at St. Peter's University in New Jersey. Thanks so much again for your time today.
1: My pleasure, Scott. take care.)
0: Welcome back to the Jill Bennett Show. My name is Scott Schantz filling in today. And how much do you think about your cyber security? You know, like your information online, your data. Have you been hacked? Have you had your data? hacked? Has that ever happened? And what were the consequences? Or maybe it happened and you didn't even do anything about it because it got fixed or it wasn't really of any consequence to you. I think that this is something that we need to take seriously because even if it doesn't affect you, if you start to get lax on this, what else are you going to get lax on? Like, this is our data. It's valuable. It's important. And we need to like stand up for that because otherwise people are making money off of us when we should be making money off of us. There's a million other reasons too. But this, uh, this headline sort of caught me. 77% of Canadian energy companies are lacking cyber security protection, 77%. That is huge. And here now to talk about it is Jeffrey Friedman. He's the vice president of Proofpoint Canada. Thanks so much for being with us, uh, Jeffrey. I appreciate it.
2: Thanks so much, Scott. Great to be here.
0: So, tell me about this cybersecurity uh, or, or the lack of cybersecurity protection with Canadian energy companies. Now, when when I think of cybersecurity, right away I think about my data. But is that what we're talking about here, or is this about like um, like other types of security, like protection from hacks and people bringing down our energy grid, that type of thing?
2: That's a really good question, Scott. So, th- so specifically, the research we did was around. Um, how an organization appears uh, to their consumers, their other business organizations. So um, what we did was we did a research study around um, how that organization can be impersonated and how it can appear um, inadvertently to a consumer or to another business, not as, as themselves. And and so it's, a, it's an enormous statistic. You talked about at the beginning of the, of the call here at 77% of the Canadian or uh, publicly traded uh, energy companies are exposing themselves to email fraud, and that's specifically the category uh, inside of cybersecurity we we're talking about. Is this email fraud very common? And uh, you know, it's a it's a massive amount. 2.7 billion dollars was reported last year in business email compromise scams uh, by the FBI. So you can just get a sense of just how significant this is.
0: Right. So what what. Like could happen. What is sort of the end result, or or the worry about this type of fraud? Is it us having our information stolen, or is it just that this demonstrates a lack of care on the part of these companies?
2: Yeah. So the the real problem here is a organization exposes themselves and their their consumers or their end users to being impersonated. So think of this more as. Uh, Rather than a hack per se, where we take down an organization, this, they, the threat actors, we call them threat actors, I think it's a terrible term, but we, you know, the the bad guys get in the middle of a conversation and look for exfiltrate dollars. So they'll may say, redirect a payment here or pay this bill. um, And it appears to be from, you know, perhaps your gas company, but it's not. And so what they've done is they've basically injected a false, um uh, invoice into into the, uh, your email and you've responded to it so it's a what we call business email compromise and so this is you know a real problem for Canadians Canadian consumers Canadian businesses um as you've talked about at the at the, at the introduction uh and it's very significant and so there's ways to combat that and organizations need to take proactive steps to do that so uh, i think that's you know a really a, a key element of this
0: Yeah, what, like, 77% in Canada. Do you, like, give us a comparable in, say, the States or, like, a European country. Is it, like, is this kind of the same or are we way, way behind on this? So, it's
2: interesting. We do this, we do these studies uh, globally. Uh, This is, I would, you know... I was alarmed at the percentage as it relates to the energy industry in Canada. Um, this is something that the Canadian Center for Cybersecurity, so think of that as a federal government, has articulated that best practices would be to implement uh, this uh, this protocol uh, and to get to this level of cyber um, security. Uh, and we are, I would say, we are behind uh, based on our analysis uh, across uh, different industries and in different geographies.
0: Oh, okay, okay. And uh, what do you think like how can companies improve upon this? Is this as simple as like just, you know, putting in more safeguards or is this like a big job to sort of update this and and improve this? Like why why haven't they taken this more seriously and uh, these energy companies taken it more seriously and and provided, you know, more security measures?
2: Yeah, it's a super great question, uh Scott. And I think there's a there's a three I'm going to answer the question in three ways. So first is there are some organizations that are taking the steps to, to be proactive and, and, and basically closing this door. Um, but there's, for a lot of organizations, there are so many doors to go close. That, you know, it's a question of prioritizing. We believe, and based on data, um, this is an important door to go close. And so it's about prioritization uh, of an organization. And because in many cases, this isn't impacting them in terms of when you think of ransomware. Um, this is impacting people they do business with and their brand in the marketplace, it sometimes doesn't get as high a priority. Hmm. And so we believe, um, and you know, that's the case, you know, you have to, you have to think about this both as uh, not only protecting their brand, but protecting their consumers. And so that's, that's why I think it perhaps doesn't have the priority it needs. Um, You know, lots of, lots of organizations I speak to are, are moving this up the priority chain as they better understand the impact to them, themselves, their brand and their consumers. Okay.
0: Uh, So, sorry, please go ahead. Yeah.
2: No, I was just going to say, I think Canada, um, we've seen a lot of high profile cyber incidents in the last two years, but specifically in the last year that are really, I think, waking Canada up to the fact that we've got to get our cyber strength up. Um, And I think that that's a, you know, a key priority.
0: Yeah. And how does that happen? You know, when I think cybersecurity, I just think like, Oh, I need to change my password and have a good antivirus software. This feels a lot more complicated than that. Like when you talk about upping our cybersecurity, like what does that even look like for an entire country?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, So I mentioned this before, but the Canadian Center for Cybersecurity, so think of this as a department inside the federal government, it's an agency. Um, They have published, and they publish warnings, so organizations, hey, you know, this is a threat that we've seen, um, patch your systems for this threat, et cetera, so they do a lot of that. But they also do a lot of proactive education, Um, for example, this protocol that we did in our study, um, they've also said, look, organizations should implement it. They don't say... You must implement it, and I think that's a difference um, where some countries say you must do things to be at a certain level of uh, cybersecurity. We don't. So this is this is a question of how far does an organ how far do we do organizations get pushed to get to a level of cybersecurity posture?
0: Okay, and how much of this like falls on us as as people as the end? User, uh, yeah, are, we, are we like culpable in this because we just kind of go, okay, whatever, and, and let it happen? Or should we be taking responsibility for our own security when we're online?
2: Yeah, so the unfortunate thing is we all must take responsibility when being online um, because there are organizations that are very uh, crafty at um, exploiting weaknesses, exploiting, you know, we're all busy. You know, you get a, you probably get 300 emails a day, Scott. Sure. Role. Yep. And totally. you don't have time to inspect every single one of them for what could be fraud, what may be malicious, et cetera. There are some telltale ways of doing it, but, you know, we all need to up our cyber, our cyber strength and we all need to be part of the equation. But organizations that we do, we do business with, we should have the expectation they are taking the minimum, um, what I consider minimum cyber strength. To protect you know their organization online and whether it be your when you go to see your doctor and they're you know handling your health records whether you're going to see your dentist or whether you're you know providing you know your um uh, your birthday and your house address etc on a website um you should have expectations that they are handling your data in a manner which protects it um and not being you know making mistakes with it and i think that's Canadians should have that expectation. We have to be careful, but our data is out there. And so we've got to have expectations on organizations as and the manner in which they handle it.
0: Yeah, I, t- I totally agree. Because one of the things that I've come to sort of learn uh, over the last number of years, is that that data? Even though we sort of think of it as like, oh, you got my, you know, uh, dental records. So what? You know that I have like a set of fake teeth. You know that we, we sort of treat that like, oh, it's not really of consequence to me. So so why do I care that this? You know, there was this data breach. But the thing is, it's valuable. Like they, these companies are doing this because there's a value there, and then they're turning around and selling this data and making money off it, off of us off of something that we didn't consent to. And I know it's a complicated and not not an easy process, but imagine if we did have some sort of system where we got the money for our data, right? Wouldn't mm-hmm. that be incredible? So yeah, it's an interesting thing. And um, I agree, it's definitely something that uh, we here in Canada could do a bit better on. Jeffrey Friedman from Proofpoint Canada. Uh, thank you so much for your insight uh on, on the situation here. I really do appreciate it.
2: Well, thank you, Scott. I appreciate your time. We're always here for you.
0: Scott Johns filling in for Jill Bennett. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, Rents in the city. It's just getting absolutely ridiculous, isn't it? We heard this number maybe a week or two ago that a one bedroom could rent for over $3,000. I kind of looked around on Facebook Marketplace just kind of anecdotally. Definitely. There's like one bedroom, kind of lofty, cool places, sometimes furnished, sometimes not. Yeah, definitely over 3000 bucks. Like you could spend that. Um, you could probably get cheaper like in the 2000, 2500 sort of ballpark. That's kind of what it feels like places are going for, but that, that is a lot, a lot. And I think about when I first rented a one bedroom apartment in Vancouver, it, this was probably about maybe like 15 years ago. It was twelve hundred bucks. 1,200 bucks, you know, and I think it was kind of, we moved out of that one into one that was 1,100 bucks. So that's kind of what it was going for nine years ago. And uh, that's that's the timeline in the case of this next story. Crystal Cornthwaite is a renter at a building in Kitts. She's been there for nine years. She's in a 500 square foot, one bedroom, teeny tiny place. Uh, it's like on the ground level. It's dank. It's like old. It's not rent or anything. And her landlord, his name is Harvey Hammer. He owns this building, and apparently, he owns another like mansion type place uh, out in Richmond. He's evicting her so that his daughter can move in. You're allowed to do that. You're allowed to evict someone out of a place you own so that you can use it for your family members. But her concern is that uh, perhaps the intention of the daughter moving in is not, you know, entirely um, entirely ethical. Let's say because I mean, if she was paying like for purposes of this interview's sake, you know, 1200 bucks or so, uh, you know, he could be renting it for a lot, a lot more than that. So let's, let's have a discussion about this. first of all, let me know what you think. 604-280-9898 or, uh, on the buzz line, three, three, one buzz. How do we fix rents in the city? It's a big problem, but let's hear from Crystal. Uh, she joins us now. Crystal Cornthwaite. Can you like explain to me the, the situation around this place that you rent in kits?
3: Yeah, so basically uh, on July 1st, I was given two months' notice to vacate my apartment because my landlord, uh, so for the reason of landlord's use of property, um, which in this case is meant to mean that his daughter is moving into my apartment.
0: Okay, and how long have you lived in the apartment up till now?
3: Almost nine years.
0: Okay, so you don't have to tell us, but I'm guessing that your rent is, you know, pretty significantly under what rent right now would be.
3: It is. Yeah, it absolutely is.
0: Yeah. And if he were to uh, not have you as a tenant, the landlord could theoretically raise the rent quite a bit. I mean, Kits is a really, really nice neighborhood. Do you know what rents kind of go for in your neighborhood right now? Yes, because
3: actually a unit be opened up in my building the month before he gave me notice. Okay. Um, which is interesting that his daughter did not take that one, <laughs> but uh, we called and found out that it was renting for twenty three fifty for a one bedroom.
0: Okay, and yours? And is? Yeah. It's please go a ahead. Very yeah.
3: old building. Okay. Sorry, it's a very old building. There's no in suite laundry. There's no like it's, it's very very basic old building. Small small.
0: Yeah. Okay. And is, is yours a, a one bedroom as well?
3: It's considered a two, uh, but it's, it, he, he calls it a one. My landlord calls it a one. There is kind of a second bedroom. That's very, very
0: tiny. Yeah. But theoretically he could get even more than that for yours. Potentially. Yes. Okay. So are you, uh, skeptical because I would be skeptical. Uh, about this idea that his daughter is going to move in there, when in reality it could be, you know, probably back on the market for, you know, a dramatic price increase in a in a month or two. Yes,
3: I'm skeptical for several reasons. Uh, one of them being that a couple of years ago um, he used the same reason, the same exact reason, the same daughter, uh, and that tenant moved out then put it on the market about a month, I think it was the next month after he moved out. He also tried this with me around the same time, uh, same thing, same reason, same daughter from Edmonton. Um, and when the other tenant uh, started to call him on what had happened to him, because he had already moved out, uh, the landlord retracted it for me that time and said, oh, my daughter's decided to stay mm-hmm. in Edmonton, the same daughter who allegedly moved in, already moved into the building upstairs, in the, you know, in my neighbor's unit. So that makes me skeptical. Uh, on top of that, you know, my landlord owns and lives in a seven bedroom, seven bathroom house in Easton And his daughter, the one he says wants my 500 square foot apartment has two young children, and currently lives in a three-car garage home in Edmonton with
0: her husband. Right. So it's like, why are you and your husband going to move into this little teeny tiny spot in an old building that's not renovated? It just, it definitely seems suspect. And we also know that this is something that landlords around the city and around the province have been doing it it definitely wouldn't be the first time that something like this, like this has happened. So like, have you tried to, to fight this? Are you going to try to fight this? Has any, like you mentioned other other units in your building, this has happened. Has anyone tried to to fight it and how far it's gone? Can you speak to that at all?
3: Yeah. So to my knowledge uh, it's not been fought in my building and, it, and I feel it may have happened to other people in my building which was one of the reasons I went public with this I think he's, he's doing it quite a bit is my suspicion I don't I don't know that for sure but I do suspect it I have submitted a, a dispute so you're able to dispute these types of notices and then I have a hearing in October um, I've submitted my evidence which includes you know some of the things that I've already mentioned during this interview and uh if I lose the hearing, I have forty eight hours to vacate my home of nine years.
0: Wow. Do you know what happens if you win the hearing? You get you just get to stay, right? There's no there's no compensation. I just
3: get
0: to stay. Okay, now no. do and, you know, and there's
3: no repercussions for him. Either.
0: Right. So now what happens if you decide to move out and then his daughter doesn't move in. Like, let's say you decide to move out and then you see the property on Facebook Marketplace, you know, a month from now. Do you know what happens then?
3: He would owe me 12 months worth of rent.
0: Well, that's pretty significant. You'd
3: think, but, uh, you know, one thing after talking to a lot of people about this, it's believed that it's just not enough of a deterrent for landlords, which is why a lot of them are doing this right now. Uh, Twelve months worth of rent, especially with the rent I'm paying, being a nine year old tenant, to him, to someone you know who owns, right, to at least two very large significant properties. Uh, I don't know that it's a big deal to him, and for me as well, because I'll have lost my home. I don't have anywhere else to go. I don't even have that. Fa- I don't have family in the city, um, so it will be a huge life. Changing impact on me, that 12 months worth of rent just wouldn't really help to rectify in any
0: way. You know, Crystal, that's a really great point. And I'm glad you say it that way because I think, like, for lots of people, you hear that 12 months rent, and you think, oh, jackpot. But like, let's just sort of break that down. Let's say, let's just, even for ease's sake, let's say you're paying a thousand dollars a month right now and he's gonna double it to two thousand dollars a month. So say he had to pay you out that twelve grand. He would make that back in a year and then after that all of it is is more profit than you just staying there so to your point right it's still not enough of a deterrent for somebody to do something like that so what would you like to see uh, the city or the province do to protect Tenants like yourself, because I think like we hear stories like this all the time, and that's why I'm so glad to have the opportunity to talk to you. What should we be doing for tenants in these situations to support people like yours, like yourself?
3: Yeah, so uh, you know, basically what I've learned through all of this is they recently, uh, I believe in 2021, made it more difficult to do rent evictions. Um, so we saw a big drop in rent evictions, mainly because they you know, the city or the province implemented um, new laws or rules that landlords had to really prove the renovation and submit, you know, documents or papers really showing uh, the fact that the place needs to be renovated and what needs to be done, you know, just having to really prove their case before just being able to, you know, kick their tenants out. So what happened when that went into place, uh, we saw a huge increase in these types of uh, of, renovations
0: Evictions, Evictions. yeah.
3: Um, Yeah, so meaning that the same sort of thing would need to happen, you know, it can't be so easy for landlords to just simply claim, oh, I need to use your, I need to use your home now for, you know, my purposes, so you have two months to get out, you know, so some sort of like checks and balances Mm -hmm. so that they have to, you know, really, you know, maybe the relative that's moving in, um, you know, has like, fills out a formal application and states the reason they're moving there, um, things like that. The other part of it is they, they, the relative only needs to move in for six months for this to be a valid eviction. Right. So Meaning I can lose my home of nine years so his daughter could theoretically stay in my apartment for six months while she house hunts you know, in Vancouver. Yeah.
0: And then quote unquote, they change their mind and decide to do something else. And, and, uh, the place goes on the market at, at market rate, which yeah, is really a shame. And we've been talking about this housing problem for a long time and it's, it's continuing. And one of the things that has come up, we talked about this yesterday is that a lot of people don't want to necessarily be landlords because of, um, problem tenants Um, But this is the other side of that equation, where you know you say you've lived there nine years. You mentioned how you've got all this evidence collected. You know we're speaking now. You you don't strike me as someone who is going to be a difficult or bad tenant. Yet here we have a landlord who made a deal and is not is not adhering to the terms of that deal. And this is the other side where people like yourself are, for lack of a better term, are getting screwed, and it's not right. So um, I really, really hope that that this works out for you, Crystal. And um, yeah, we're going to keep talking about this and hopefully we get a chance to to speak again and, you know, you can tell us some good news. Sounds good. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.